After seeing the Passover meal described in chapter 12 and how it points to what God's redemption will look like for His people, we now see that in action, as was just read regarding the tenth plague and the Exodus. But also we have these descriptions again of the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is going to point to the ongoing relationship that has been marked by that redemption. We'll look, at the, we'll look firstly at God's redemption of us, God's redeemed people defined, and then God's relationship with us. Chapter 12, verses 29 to 42, we have the tenth plague, the actual Exodus event. In God's redemption of us, we firstly see that it is solemn. In uh, verses 29 through 32, we have the most devastating of the ten plagues. But there is little recorded about it. It's actually uh, receiving the least amount of airtime, as it were, uh, in the Bible. It's the fiercest, it's also the shortest. Uh, theologian uh, Dr. Wright mentions uh, this is like when the Gospels will simply state that they crucified him. There's a, there's a brevity to what's recorded, maybe in part because it is so utterly devastating that there is a, a solemnness as the people are leaving Egypt in the Exodus, there's, there's no celebration. There's no triumphal exit in, in victory. There's, there's simply a, a leaving. It is so devastating. It even records to us that there's, there's not a, a single house in Egypt where someone has not died. And this is a stark reminder that the wages of sin is death. And that the judgment of God is very real. It is very serious. And it is assured that sin will be punished. But we see the people leave in in a solemn fashion that this week reminded me of our annual Good Friday service, where there's quiet hymns that are reflecting on their crucifixion. Uh, the church calendar, the color for the day is, is black. We usually leave the service, the sanctuary, in, in solitude, thinking, thinking through the weight of sin, the reality that it causes death, that it causes destruction. That it leads to an eternal separation. God's redemption of us at times should cause us that type of pause. That type of somberness. Actually discussing the the ramifications, the reality of sin and death, hell and judgment, while being utterly unpopular are necessary in the Christian life. But alongside that, specifically in verses 36 through 42, 
we not only see God's redemption of us is, is solemn, but it reminds us that we are safe. In God's redemption, we are assured of safety. Verses 33 through 36 reiterate that when the Israelites gather belongings from the Egyptians uh, for their journey, that's something God had promised them. That as they're leaving, they will have things to take with them. They will be taken care of. The haste is emphasized in verse 39, uh, as we knew they'd have to leave without the bread leavening. So we already, we already had a description and a discussion of the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread. We knew this was coming. We knew this was going to happen. But here it is. They had to leave so quickly that the bread couldn't even rise. They put the bowls over their shoulders. They took whatever bread they had, and they just left. The text even says they made no provisions for themselves, even beyond that. Being on a journey can be very scary due to the unexpected, especially when you know you are not properly prepared. Anybody who's recently flown in an airplane will recognize there's anxiety. Will I be checked for this? Did I remember to bring that? Am I going to catch the next flight? Do I, do I even know what I'm walking into when I arrive and said destination? All types of, of questions and concerns. Maybe even being a new Christian can feel like that. What is all of this about? Verse 42 says twice that this was a night of watching by the Lord. Now this word refers to a few things. God Himself watched over His people as they traveled. Even though He called them to sojourn, He called them to go and find a different home, a different residence, to live amongst a different people, He does not kick them out of Egypt and say, well, it's now all up to you. Go figure it out in the the promised land. I'm not going with you. He never says that. He's... The text records God watching over all the actions of His people as they're packing up and leaving. They're never coming back. At least that generation. He watches over us in Christ as we travel as well. As we move throughout our life. As we experience many of the transitions that that Bob prayed about. Experiencing suffering and death. Losing aunts and uncles and loved ones. The Lord watches over His people. It also means He was keeping or observing or fulfilling what He said He would do. He's faithfully executing His will for His people in taking them out of Egypt toward the promised land. He's watching over His people who have received His covenant promises. He said all of this was going to happen. And He's watching over it, not to make sure that it will happen, but to assure His people I, I, I'm going to do, do what I said I was going to do. This is all going to happen. I am the sovereign Lord of the universe. And again, these words are picked up in Psalm 121, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The psalmist was possibly reflecting on these events of sojourning, of travel, which will take decades. Many of these individuals will not go into the promised land. They will not live 
that long. Again, flying this last week, it reminded me of the days when I was in and out of airports all over the world, doing missionary work, saying goodbye, being alone, dealing with travel by myself, not knowing the foreign language all of the time, saying goodbye to my family, to my friends, to my culture, something that the Manly family deals with all the time with Nick's brother, a high calling, a great calling, but very difficult. Deal with this often with Jody's family saying hello and goodbye in airports. The travel, the suffering, the unknown, the anxiety should push the Israelites and should push us to marvel in the greatness of our God who does not leave us nor forsake us in those moments but is watching over his people in all of our circumstances, even as we sojourn in this life. But secondly, as, as God's people have left Egypt, there is, there is an enormous question that is posed uh, somewhat with the text. If you would just... Uh, reflect on verse 38. It says, A mixed multitude also went up with them. We have hundreds of thousands of people of Israelites who are leaving Egypt, but we don't actually know who else left with them. Most likely other people who were enslaved by the Egyptians, possibly Ethiopians, uh, people of darker skin color who lived around Egypt. Uh, a mixed multitude is all that the text tells us that left with the Israelites. So the question could be, how are we going to define who these people are that have been redeemed? The practice of the Passover is going to inform us. Not simply of who God's people were in the Old Testament, but who we should be today. Uh, there's a lot going on here in verses 43 through 51 as uh, more detail is given about the Passover meal. I've already discussed the details of the Passover meal uh, in a previous sermon, this is focused in some ways on a, a defining marker of who belongs to God, who belongs to Yahweh. Uh, that's a good question, because verse 38 mentioned a mixed multitude came out, and our text in these several verses use four different terms uh, that can be kind of translated into the English as foreigner, uh, temporary resident, hired worker, or foreigner residing among you. Those are four different classes of foreigners or immigrants that uh, are coming out with the Israelites or who might join them on their journey to Sinai, who might join them eventually in the land, in the promised land. They're not Israelites. Can they take the Passover meal? I'm glad you asked when I answer that. The worshiping nation of Israel will be a mixed multitude of race, ethnicity, and economic status. Just like the New Covenant Church should be. That's okay if you don't see that in every local manifestation of the universal church. But the universal church has always been and will ever be the most diverse group of people 
on the planet. I have more in common with some of those Peruvian Presbyterians than I do with anybody I will see at Kroger tomorrow. The text here is informing us of that. There will be Israelites who die in the wilderness because they don't believe in God, even though they're circumcised. There are immigrants who are coming out of Egypt who are going to go with the Israelites, hear the law from Sinai, go into the promised land, and be Israelites. Not by birth, but by profession. It was so highlighted to me uh, this last week, uh, worshiping at Cristo Rey, singing Be Thou My Vision and Nothing But the Blood in Spanish. Hearing, hearing the, the melody, no, noticing some of the words, and I was the unfortunate person who was the American on the stage who was trying to sing in Spanish and act like I knew what I was doing. And I would see the word and I would know the word, but we were already to the next stanza when I figured out what we were singing. But it's so amazing that we're singing the same stuff. There's a bond across ethnicities uh, that doesn't exist elsewhere. I have a taste of it by marrying into another culture myself. But it is a a beautiful thing. We We will talk more about uh, the detailed immigration laws of Old Testament Israel after the Ten Commandments in the case law where this is more fleshed out. But know that the people of God who are being redeemed, who are eventually going to come in to the fold, go far beyond ethnic Israel. As it always has and always will. Because it's about faith, which is what we come to now. How are these people then included in the covenant? How are these people included into a relationship with God if they're not born of Israel? How are they going to be able to take the Passover meal? I will now answer that question, and it's through receiving the sign of the covenant. Uh, Throughout these verses, verses 43 through 51, there are caveats put in to say, yeah, they can take the Passover meal. Yeah, they can come with you. Yeah, they can do this. Only thing is there has to be circumcision. We don't care what language they speak. We don't care their economic status. We don't care where they're from, where they're born, how they look. Oh, you got to be circumcised. This isn't a free-for-all. God picks his chosen people through a covenant relationship, which has covenant signs. Just by being near God's people doesn't mean you are God's people. There has to be obedience to God's word through the sign that God gave to Abram that he said to give to his son Isaac. And now it's being offered to foreigners. Um, Again, Dr. Wright lays it out nicely in verses 43 through 45, saying you can join in God's covenant meal uh, if you happen to be a slave living in an Israelite home if you receive the sign of circumcision. Otherwise, foreigners and non-Israelite laborers can't participate. Can't do it. Can't, Can't have the meal. It's not a free for all. It's not a popularity contest. We're not to people pleased to obey God's word. Is this based on race? How could anyone even ask that question based on what we just said? Of course it's not. Never was. 
The New Testament isn't more friendly to foreigners than the Old Testament. It's, it's one covenant. It's one God. One story of grace. The sign of circumcision is not some rote, empty ritual. It points to the act of redemption. The foreigners who agreed to be circumcised and to have their sons circumcised marked themselves out from their own ethnic people who, were, who would be pagans, who would be worshiping false gods, who were polytheists. In taking on the sign, they're refuting all of that, saying this is the sign of the covenant God, Yahweh, of the Exodus, gave to the patriarchs starting with Abraham. We're doing this in obedience, out of faith. But then they would give it to their sons, who would then be included in the covenant along with the daughters. Verse 48 also mentions a foreigner who may come to work with them and then decides to, to live there. This is somewhat like someone who has a, a visa, who lives long enough to be a naturalized citizen. And again, God says to Moses, yeah, they can partake of the Passover meal if that occurs. If they receive the sign circumcision. Again, Dr. Wright, the covenant community must be carefully defined, indeed so, uh, but it will be defined not by ethnicity alone, but by commitment to the worship of Yahweh under the sign of circumcision, and that can be a matter of choice, not just of birth. Israel is not only a chosen people, but also a, a choosing community that goes beyond ethnicity. So the covenant meal is for the covenant people who've received the covenant sign. The sign isn't based on ethnicity. It's based on the faith of an adult in the household. Then the children, regardless of faith, are included as the male is circumcised. So the son would be circumcised. Then there's a covenant relationship in that household. Our meal uh, is transformed a bit in the Lord's Supper. As I said last time, uh, there is faith that's needed to participate in this meal that we have because of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves. But the sign is also required in Colossians 2, from circumcision to baptism, covenant baptism. Both male and female in the household, regardless of their faith, based on the faith of their parents, but there's no more blood, there's no more cutting, the girls are included because it's a new and better covenant. But look at, the, look at the tapestry of diversity that is being woven into Old Testament Israel based on Yahweh. This should be included in new covenant worship, and it is all over the world every Lord's Day. That's what we're a part of. The Old Testament people of Israel fulfilled in all of their uh, multi-ethnic diversity and New Covenant church worship. But finally, we look a little further at God's relationship with us as we look at um, the verses, first 16 verses of chapter 13. Uh, our relationship with God, is now defined by our redemption. It's outlined in verses 1 through 2 and verses 11 
uh, through 16, that throughout the generations, they are to consecrate the firstborn of both man and beast. And this is what their relationship is going to involve, uh, because verse 14 says they're to tell their sons uh, that the 10th plague uh, and the Exodus event were both by God's hand. And so when there's a child that would ask, well, why are we consecrating these people? Why are we doing this with the firstborn animals? They're going to say, don't you remember what God did to the firstborn of the Egyptians? Don't you remember that we all are God's firstborn? This is a, a tool of remembrance in this act of consecration that who are you? I'm redeemed of Yahweh. Notice he's not going to ask them, or oh, are you ethnic Israel? Or are you a, conver- a converted Egyptian? I don't care. Have you received the sign of circumcision? You're Yahweh's. Why? Because he saved you. Saved you from more than just slavery, but from sin. The relationship is defined by the redemption. Nothing else. It's a reminder that they belong to Yahweh, their Redeemer, that this should continue throughout all of their families. As again, I've already highlighted earlier, last two weeks ago. It's a reminder too, as we look forward, that Jesus was the firstborn of Mary, Luke chapter 2. He's the firstborn of creation, Colossians 1.15. He's the firstborn among the dead, Colossians 1.18, Revelation 1.5. We have a mark of redemption, brothers and sisters, that's even greater than the 10th plague and the Exodus event. Because Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, face something worse than the 10th plague himself to redeem us. As it says here in this text, we've been redeemed. We've been bought back. We've been purchased. That is the defining moment and the defining mark of my identity and my relationship with the Lord and with all of creation and with everyone else. That has got to be relief. The act of redemption defines who I am. Not my job. Not my income or lack thereof. Not my ethnicity. Not my level of education. His death on the cross for my sins defines me. And it shows me how he thinks about me. For all of eternity. That's a community that I would want to be a part of if I was an outsider who was busy defining my life based on all those other pieces of garbage that are going to ruin me if I put all of my all of my stock in my job, I'm gonna get fired eventually, possibly. The federal government may come after me for even preaching the book of Leviticus. My job doesn't define me. My income doesn't define me. What part of Hernando I live in doesn't define me. Whether or not I'm from this state or not, or from this country or not, doesn't define me. Doesn't define you. The redemption. Jesus' death on your behalf is the only thing that defines you. Praise be to God as we have been redeemed, according to verses 13 and 15. But this is also a relationship that's designed for long-term gratitude. 
We see again the instructions of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that is to be perpetually celebrated in the Promised Land as a reminder of what the Lord did in bringing them with haste out of Egypt. It's a significant reminder to never forget this act of redemption. But if you notice in verses 9 and 10, the words for the first time are used, the law of the Lord, the Torah, that will be pounded upon for the rest of the book of Exodus But you have to recognize God has redeemed his people and defined the relationship before he tells them what to do. He doesn't come to his people and say, obey me so that I will love you. He redeems his people, says and shows that he loves them, and then says, don't you want to obey me? They are to have all of these rituals and rites, as it says, frontlets on their eyes, marks on their hands, so that they never forget their redemption. He has defined their relationship out of the redemption that he has wrought on their behalf. This should move us to worship, mission, and evangelism for people who haven't heard this. Last Saturday, it was an incredible, unexpected blessing to travel two and a half hours south of Trujillo to a city called Chimbote to meet with two of the ten families, ten to fifteen families, that saw the worship of Cristo Rey over live stream when they were not legally allowed to leave their houses for church during the pandemic. And the Lord, through the Holy Spirit in that city, was moving a small core group of people to transition to a church that believes in the gospel and Bible preaching and elder-led church government. And they are begging for a planter to come and lead them, to raise up other elders, to raise up other churches because they are hungry to live out their redemption, to live out in relationship to one another and to their community, God's law, the Torah. That is what moved me most. Can we pray for that passion in our church? that we would see a group of people, South Haven, Senatobia, North Shelby County, throughout our presbytery, who are hungering to hear this and to live it out. May his kingdom be extended as we are reminded again from Psalm 121. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let us pray together. Lord Christ, we give you all praise, honor, and glory that you have given us the sign of baptism, the entrance into the covenant community for adult of faith, for child of that adult, that we would come to a meal through faith after that sign that is even better than the Passover because it pictures for us our redemption from our sins 
as we come together this morning along with a multitude of hosts in heaven and throughout the world who bow at the name of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.